Well, they say that the arc of justice is long and it bends towards justice or something like that. The arc of the moral universe. Is that what it is? The arc of the moral universe is long and it bends towards justice. And if that is the case, it applies to our topic today of Moms for Liberty, who had a meteoric rise a couple of years ago. And today, not so much. We're going to talk about it on today's Citizen Stewart Show. Welcome to the Citizen Stewart Show, a podcast about education in America, where we dive deep into the top headlines and add new perspectives about our schools and our democracy. I'm your host, Chris Citizen Stewart, Chief Influencer at EdPost, a media platform focused on educational opportunity and justice for every child. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Ravi Gupta, a former Obama staffer and former superintendent of a network of charter schools in the South and is now the fearless leader of the branch media, of which the Citizen Stewart Show is a part of. Welcome, Ravi. How are you doing? I'm good, man. Just living life here in New York City. How's it going out there in Minnesota? It's gotten real. So over Christmas, we didn't have any snow. It was just like plain. It was like, it, 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 we might as well have been like, you know, Arizona or someplace like that. No snow on the ground, no no, no freezing frost and all that stuff. And I, And a week later, it hit. And yeah, last week it was like 20 below or something. And and you should know this, like I have kids that are, you know, athletics age. They refuse to wear jackets. They refuse to wear coats. They refuse to like uh, picked up my kid from basketball the other day. He's wearing shorts and a T-shirt. And it was like seven degrees outside. This is the travails of parents. This is what we have to go through. Young people today. Listen, man, I want to throw three kind of news stories at you and see if you care. See if you 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 feel any kind of way about them. Can we do that real quick? Yeah, of course. For the audience, by the way, this is to give you a peek behind the curtain. This is Chris's opportunity to just put things my way that I have not prepared for in any way. Just so you know, I'm giving you a warning. <laughs> but that you would have insight into and probably be a good person to ask. Right. Well, let's see. Let's see if I can think on my feet. So the first one, I'm just going to give you a headline. Maybe I won't dig too deep into the headline, but the Alaska Board of Education lowers test scores, test score standards due to nationally high bar. The opening of this is the Alaska Board of Education approved lowering the test score standard for student proficiency after school leaders cited the state's nationally high bar. What do you think? Well, as a general trend, obviously, I don't know a lot about what's going on in Alaska. As a general trend, it seems like these standards are only going in one direction. Like, when was the last time you heard about them raising the standards? Uh, it has happened in my lifetime. I forget which state it was. It might have been New York, I think, at least 10 years ago, had raised standards and people's proficiency suffered, I believe. I believe it was New York. But by and large, it's always lowering standards. Now, there could, in each individual case, there could be good reasons here and there for doing this. But it just seems like it's going in one direction. That's just my initial reaction. Associated with that headline is one that I think you forwarded to me. I don't know. Someone did a week or two ago. This is the New York Times. The article says, the misguided war on the SAT. Colleges have fled standardized tests on the theory that they hurt diversity. That's not what the research shows. What do you think about this headline? Well, actually, you know, you love when I say this. I We did a segment on that very article on the Lost Debate Network. We talked to Todd Rose, I think it was last week or the week before. And directionally, I agree. I think it was David Leonardo who wrote that article. I directionally agree with it. But Todd, from like a stats perspective, poked some holes in the methodology that was used in it. I generally like standardized tests for reasons that I think you and I have talked about before. But I also like people to be 
cogent and be honest about their use of statistics. And Todd seemed to have some issues with the the methods that they used in that article. So I have mixed feelings, mixed judgment. So you're saying he had issue with the article itself, the methods that were used in the article or in SATs, period? If it's the David Leonhardt article, it was just the data that he was using to say, well, the SAT is more correlated or is is less correlated with economics and race than these other measures. And Todd just had some questions about the methodology mm-hmm. But by and large, I just anecdotally and based on my reading of the evidence, it does seem like things like what school you went to, the quality of your letters of recommendations, the extracurriculars and all that are more uh, more correlated with income than the SAT. And people who are opponents of the SAT seem to point only to the SAT's correlation with economic inequality, but they don't want to acknowledge the alternatives being way worse. That's my general feeling about it. But it's one that I wish there was better like data on because as Todd pointed out in that interview, like the data is just still not great on these correlations. Yeah, I think um, this is something that's come up a lot over the years when people rail on a test, a specific test and say it's so bad, the question comes up, well, what would be your alternative? Like, what would you do? Fine. Okay, let's let's assume we all agree that the particular test you're talking about is not very good. And it seems like all the time people make a proposal on some sort of alternative, it's worse. <laughs> you know, it's it's like, you know, in some states in Minnesota, we went to this like portfolio method once. It was like all these, you know, like portfolio criteria. It was called the profiles of learning. And it was crazy because it just created chaos. It, it got people back to see, seeing the idea that one test might be better than all that kind of, I don't know. Uh, I'm not an expert on it. It would be great to have an expert, an actual psychometrician once on on the show to explain the deeper kind of like things that we don't know as a public about these tests. But I always hear that the, the alternatives are not great. Going to uh, Tennessee, here's a story that you might have some insight in because it's Tennessee and we know that you have an affiliation and a like for Tennessee. The headline is Democrats call for removal of education commissioner, specifically talking about Commissioner Lizette Reynolds, who replaced Peggy Schwinn when she left in 2023. Penny Schwinn, yeah. It says here, Reynolds, who replaced Peggy Schwinn in 2023, does not hold a teacher's license, even though a 100-year-plus state law requires the commissioner to be qualified to teach in the highest grade over that she has authority over, which would be 12th grade. Does this feel like like one hand clapping and we know what this is about? Like Democrats trying to find anything they can to get rid of somebody who's pro-charter or pro-voucher? Big, big yawn. Like, who cares about the, (laughs) yeah, who cares about the teaching license? Like, these licensure laws are often, like, useless. Um, Talk about data. Like, yes, you should be qualified to teach your subject, but what it takes to teach, like, let's say she, you know, she has a, a, a license to teach, you know, seventh grade world history. That does very little to tell you about can she manage a complex department uh, and manage a bunch of people, bring political stakeholders together, analyze data, make recommendations, make budget trade-offs. These are not the same things. And so I do not believe that those are the same. Do you think that that could also apply to the way that we look at principles and the way that we look at superintendents? I mean, why do they have to have a teaching background if the jobs that they do are so different than teaching? Like a good principal is not a good classroom teacher. I agree. Like, you know, Jeff Van Gundy was an incredible basketball coach for the New York Knicks. Uh, I don't think he played professional basketball. 
right? Like Bill Belichick was a mediocre football player, but an excellent football coach. So I do think that, yeah, I've seen excellent principals who've never had never taught. And I've seen horrible principals who've had extensive experience teaching. Now, it, it helps often to say I have a record in schools, but I don't think it's dispositive one way or the other. I, I don't think the lack of it should disqualify somebody if they have other great qualifications. And I don't think the experience itself is enough to tell you somebody will be a great principal. On balance, I think just because like running schools Time in schools can help you run better schools if you have the right mindset. On balance, if I had the same candidate who had all this great managerial experience and life experience, et cetera, and somebody with very similar experience and one of them had more time in the classroom, I'm probably going to go with the person who had more time in the classroom. But I don't think you should cross somebody off the list because they don't have that experience. Yeah. One thing that I had heard over the years is that uh, principals should be instructional leaders, meaning if you have a teacher that needs help or needs support and isn't living up to their performance, you should be good enough as a teacher to be able to help that person from a point of expertise, from a point of like knowing. And I'll tell you like a couple ways. Well, one way that this has played out when I visited Valor School in Tennessee, it's funny because three of the top dogs there were leading me on a guided tour of Valor of their school. And uh, when we got to the classrooms, each one of them ended up supporting the teacher and, and jumping in with a couple of students and teaching. And they knew exactly where the teachers were in the lesson. And they knew exactly what questions to ask us. Like, like the three people leading us on the tour were actually instructional leaders. Like they, they were in admin positions, but they were capable of teaching. I just thought that was so interesting. I don't know that that should be the prerequisite, but it's good. Yeah, I do think that we need more. I, I always hate hard rules, but I think we need more instructional leaders and former principals in the ranks of both superintendents of charter school networks and in the ranks of this sort of support organizations. Because I think it's, to me, it's very obvious when I'm around somebody and I'm talking school stuff, like, is this charter network performing well or not? Um, if somebody has run a school or not, it's very obvious to me in talking to them whether they've had that experience or not. And maybe this is just my bias as somebody who did it. But often what would happen is I, I you know, I was replaced by a fund, like a guy who was like a, a funder rep type. And he, you know, as we established last episode, didn't do a great job instructionally and with the data and, you know, per your sort of framework, was very much amenable to these arguments that were spending too much time on academics, right? Because like the buzz of the time was like, you know, we need to be... We need, we need to focus less on results and more on the whole child or whatever BS, right? And I feel like people who are further removed from instructional leadership are more likely to buy into that kind of BS. And so I think like that sort of cancer that spread over the past decade from you know the sport organizations to the, the networks, et cetera, was particularly virulent with the people who didn't have the experience in the classroom and leading kids to results. And so in that sense, I'm heavily biased towards people who have instructional leadership. I love how you just said, and all that whole, whole child BS. <laughs> uh, I believe very much in the whole child. Well, it doesn't, what does it mean? It's like, do you want, do you want world peace, right? Come on. Like everybody says yes, but it's, it's not, it's not a replacement for specificity. Like, you know, somebody once told me it's easier to macro bullshit than to micro bullshit. It's easier to be like, yeah, our, like I'm touring your school and I'm like, okay, can the kids read? That's data that you could show very quickly, right? And you could also show that it's not happening very quickly. Whereas if, like, are we supporting the whole child? You could be there for a decade and 
people are going to have a hundred million different answers to it. So it's a place for people to hide who aren't performing really well. Now, does that mean I don't believe that kids should have strong mental health and like great recess and enrichment and sense of purpose and all that kind of stuff? Yes, I believe in those things. Those things are way harder to measure and to prove. And often the whole child has to read before they can accomplish a lot of other things. And if they can't read, the whole child is very much you know, I would say at risk, uh, to say the least. So it's, to me, it's the refuge of people who lack rigor and are trying to hide is to say, well, we're not focused on those results. We're focused on the whole child. So those are my cards. I'm going to push back on that politely and just say, I could probably show you several school leaders who will tell you that we were doing all the reading and the math stuff, right. And we weren't still, we still needed to attend to some other things that were getting in the way of us being able to have a healthy classroom or a classroom that works or kids that pay attention or whatever. So we tried X and then we tried Y and then we tried Z and three of these things failed, but one of them worked or, you know, there's a story in St. Louis of a principal who put washer and dryers in the school, which I thought was such a crazy idea. And it did have an impact on kids in the school and participating that led to outcomes. And she wasn't doing it because she was on any fluffy kind of mission about whole child stuff. She just did it because she had a practical issue. She figured out that many of the kids had a dirty clothes problem and they were being picked on in school and some didn't want to come to school on some days if they didn't have their clothes washed. They had parents that were doing fast food service jobs and didn't wash clothes every day and all that stuff. And uh, they formed like two things, I think a pantry and washing machine dryer kids would bring all their laundry in and get it washed at school. And it did have an impact. I don't, I wouldn't have predicted that something like that would have an impact, but then I wasn't running her school. Yeah. But as you and I established, when we talked about neighborhood schools, the ticket to the dance is the academics, right? That is like the first thing that we need to know about your school is, are the kids safe? And can they read, write, to perform the academics. And what we pointed out there is that we asked these schools to do so much. And actually, like, yes, you can take on these other things, but first and foremost, we need to know that you're doing the basic thing we're asking you to do. I suspect that the St. Louis example you're giving, um, given that you're shouting them out, continue to do well on math and reading. Where I have an issue with it is when they abandon any sense of fidelity to those hardcore academic metrics and say they're doing something else. Sometimes they are actually doing those other things. Sometimes they're not. And it's a fig leaf to cover up for a lack of results. Because what I was seeing over time is, and this particularly was happening around the time that there was a transition to Common Core, school leaders are starting to get bad results. And then they began a marketing push, which is, oh, I'm not about those results anymore. Right. And it wasn't, it wasn't a genuine shift. It was, hey, I have a better narrative now that I can sell my board. I saw it firsthand, very personally, in what happened after me at my network. And I've seen it in a lot of other networks. And when you, the funny thing is, if you sit down and talk to school leaders, they will be honest about this. That in some cases, they either consciously did it or they subconsciously did it and over time backtracked. And I think the latter, like, you know, give people space to, to adjust course. There was a lot of pressure at that period of time to not be so focused, quote unquote, on the academics. But all of that is to say is like, I'm not against those other things if you can do the other things right. The problem is if a school leader is telling me they're doing 10 different things uh, and none of those 10 things have any data behind them uh, and the kids can't read and write, I'm starting to ask some some tougher questions about what's going on at that school. Yeah. 
I think we meet in the middle on that because I definitely 100% agree with what you're saying. It, it has been a fig leaf, like the whole kind of like the whole child thing for a long time was an anti-testing thing. It was like, you know, we're opposed to data and information and we don't want to be judged. We don't, we don't want schools to be graded and that sort of thing. So that is the fig leaf part. The other part, though, is some of the schools that are getting results for kids they are doing it with a jerry-rigged set of things that they put together because they had a very specific problem and it helped them get better test scores, right? Like the test scores improved because you had a good principal come in and say the way that we schedule the day is sucky. Uh, the kids are all crashing right after lunch, you know, we're, and we're feeding them crap, <laughs> which is why. And, you know, we're giving them too much sugar throughout the day and they're crashing by like, you know, one o'clock. And it was, it's those type of things that they think through that aren't test-based things, but they might improve your test scores in the long run. You know, Eva Moskowitz is a good example of this. Highly controversial, but Eva cares a lot about what that lunch is. She cares a lot about the whole child. I think her critics would say she doesn't, but, uh, you know, based on what I've seen, she certainly does. But her academics are freaking off the charts amazing. And she probably could give you a metric behind so much of the whole child stuff, too. Uh, she could probably tell you how she views school health as it relates to nutrition and recess and enrichment and all that kind of stuff. And actually could tell you in very tangible ways how it's working. So in that sense, I, I, I applaud her for being able to do a lot. Yeah, and I kick it back to the old school of like uh, the Harlem Children's Zone and the stuff with Jeffrey Canada, um, where he was like a stalwart for the, you know, we've got to get kids reading. We've got to get kids doing math and science and all that stuff. But he was also a stalwart on how many kids in that lived in neighborhoods where the odds were against them for many reasons, you know, it was against them because there were low expectations in the schools, but it was also against them because the adults in their communities weren't united on a certain set of things that kids need. Um, and I can't say that it was universally successful, but, you know, the whole promise neighborhood thing across the country did improve some communities uh, and the learning in those communities by attending to, well, the community. <laughs> Sometimes your community is like, is, is your problem uh, and where you live is your problem. So, and you carry that in a school with you. So um, let's jump to the main topic today, which is Moms for Liberty. If you think about Moms for Liberty, many people know them. If you, you have to be living under a rock if you haven't heard of Moms for Liberty. They had a meteoric rise, as I said earlier, a couple of years ago, got into the national spotlight, quickly formed many chapters across the country, and had just a swell in membership, a supposed swell in membership. They started turning their focus on to school boards, and their idea was to flip school boards and to install a way of thinking that came from the, the right-wing foundations that were supporting them. And, you know, it, it looked like it was a nonstop juggernaut. A couple years ago, one of the most insufferable men in education commentary wrote this about Moms for Liberty. Until Moms for Liberty, efforts to organize parents into an effective political counterweight to teachers unions and to impose their will on K-12 education haven't amounted to very much. Colleen Dipple, the former or the founder of Houston-based Families Empowered, a parent, parent support organization with no connection to the group, says mom says this of Moms for Liberty. They are doing things that other organizations have received millions of dollars to do and haven't been able to do. The National Parents Union hasn't flipped a school board. They haven't changed a policy that I'm aware of. And this was said in an article that was contrasting Moms for Liberty as a real parent juggernaut that was starting to have real power. They had a convention that had Ron DeSantis and yeah, Nikki Haley, all the, the Republican forces of nature were at 
the Moms for Liberty conference. So this is much bigger than than uh, Parents Union. Of course, I take issue with that for one because of the Moms for Liberty, but two, they were trying so hard to diss National Parents Union on this, and National Parents Union, which I have an affectionate kind of connection to, and a friend a friend of the organization, is actually in weekly conversations with the the White House and with the the current sitting Secretary of Education, and they are getting things changed and policies passed that Moms for Liberty is not getting done or passed. So thank you very much, Colleen Dipple, for that comment that didn't last very long, didn't live very well because uh, that was 2021 or 22, maybe 23. I could be getting it messed up. And here we are now in 24. And oh boy, have the, the fortunes changed. You have Moms for Liberty chapters that are disavowing the national organization because of ties to things that they don't want to be a part of. You have a national scandal about the founder and one of the leaders of the organization being involved in a uh, alleged tryst that goes against all the values that her and the organization say that they're for when it comes to you know LGBTQ ideology and the agenda. Um, you have little slip ups that you could have expected, like, you know, a chapter leader who, you know, unironically quotes Hitler in their newsletter. I mean, see, you know, it's a daisy. Those things happen. Not a big deal. Or another leader in, a, in Philadelphia who was like a, uh, a registered child sex offender. You know, oops, a daisy. Well, yeah, no matter. Or their ties to the Proud Boys or many other things. Who could have seen it coming that eventually their power would wane? Uh, there's a couple articles out right now that are basically, I think, forecasting the waning power of Moms for Liberty. And with that one, I'm a little bit not so fast. Don't like, listen, I think that might be wishful thinking. They still have, they, their budget went from $300,000 in their first year to 2 million in their second year. And who knows where it goes from here, if they can still raise money, but that's not uh, that's not the trajectory of an organization that is going to have power that wanes, but it does seem like there's some end times type of atmosphere that's going on with them. What do you think, Ravi? You know what? You know everything, I'm sure, of what I say, I'm going to say about this particular issue. So <laughs> in anticipating anything I say, what do you have to say about it? I agree with you that that any any reports of their demise are overstated. I think that one rule of politics, you know, I've been in politics most of my adult life, is that right-wing organizations never go away. People talked about after Jerry Falwell blamed the America on 9-11 and said that, I forget the exact words, but he said basically 9-11 happened because we allow gays to get married or whatever. Everybody's like, oh, the evangelical movement is done wrong, right? And the NRA, like people have been talking about, you know, Wayne LaPierre just stepped down and people have been like, oh, the NRA is, is, is gone and they're struggling and yada, yada, yada. Like one thing you haven't noticed is there hasn't been any meaningful gun reform in Congress. Why do you think that is? It's because it, like and the NRA will have its struggles or whatever, but both the NRA and everything associated with it is doing just fine. Like, you know, like they may have their legal issues. There may be insolvent here and there. But these organizations never go away because the right wing is incredibly good at supporting its groups. And I, and I say this as somebody who has run many left wing organizations over the past. But I also have good relationships with, I would say, some center right funder organizations. And so I've had the chance to deal with both. And I would say that the left wing groups are extremely fickle. So they'll fund, you know, like I, I've been running Arena. I founded this group, Arena, that is involved in all kinds of things, democratic politics. And you can never count. For, when we're the biggest training operation for democratic staffers in history. And 
you can never count from election cycle to the ele- next election cycle. There are, there are very few multi-cycle uh, grants, and you have to you have to go hat in hand every cycle and re-argue, and you have to deal with all this ambiguity. You can't plan ahead, et cetera. Our right-wing versions of these things are like, here's, here's a 30-year plan, right? And they all work together. They're all concerted, and there's way more funder discipline. And I think this is a reflection of that. I think that all the mistakes that the Moms for Liberty is making, all the contradictions are going to be ironed over on the right. Now, their ability to win the middle, I think, is very much in peril because what you're seeing is that in oftentimes in the small towns across America, a few voices were bullying the many and I think now the many are looking at them and saying, well, you may have made like one or two good points, but the next eight that came after them, I'm not behind you on that. So maybe somebody was like in the middle of COVID might have been sold on, hey, maybe we should get schools open faster or something. I'm just saying and making one, you know, picking one issue. But then they're like, well, now you're like holding up Tony Morrison and saying we need to ban it. I'm not sure I'm behind that. I'm not sure if. Moss for Liberty is banning Tony Morrison, for example, but you get the picture. So I actually think that they're they're in, in trouble with the middle in the short term. Long term with the right, I think they'll be just fine funding wise and support politicians. So a couple of things you said there to unpack. The first one is about the them being in it for the long haul. So if you think about right now, they, they came out in the beginning as being moms that were basically against masking in schools and all the COVID-19 protocols in schools. That was their first issue. And it was definitely a good one to start with because it took it cut across some different political, you know, angles. It wasn't just like one party that had people in it that that could be an attractive pushback message for. But then they graduated from the COVID stuff more into the culture war stuff of pornography in schools and LGBTQ grooming and all that stuff. And that took on their new life. That, That was their second life. Their first life was COVID. Second life was the culture war stuff. And now, smartly, they're moving on to reading and literacy as their kind of like one of their main things to cut across multiple different political groups, which I think is smart. Actually, you know, it's good planning. If you want to take over things like, you know, it helps be able to have some universal type of appeal. But the ball keeps moving because they're realizing that their ability to to keep any of those issues going for a period of time is very hard. Like you can only do the book ban thing for so long before like it starts having a bad return on investment. So the fuel, the hate fuel is actually like a quick, quick burning fuel. It's actually not a long-term fuel. The thing that does reify your point, though, is that they didn't come out of nowhere. So they're heavily supported by the Leadership Institute. Now, you talk about the arena on the left, but the Leadership Institute on the right is an organization that if you go to their website right now, (laughs) you'll see just how behind the scenes good they are at training activists. They have like a 60-page grassroots guide to winning as a conservative uh, and to take the power back. And the stuff that they're doing with Riley Gaines and other kind of notable people, none of it is by accident. All of it, they have a system. We used to have something called Wellstone, the Wellstone Group, you know, named after Paul Wellstone. It was his organization. It was very good at training progressives on how to run, how to win, how to convince the public, how to door knock, everything. And that wasn't long-term funded in the big way that, that like the Leadership Institute is. And that's the type of gas that Moms for Liberty can rely on. The Heritage Foundation which has this 2050 or what is it, 2030, 2025, I'm sorry. I keep jumping ahead on this one. 2025 plan 
It's actually a pretty robust plan on what Trump should do the day that he wins and comes back into office. It's the culmination of everything that they've wanted for like 50 years in a blueprint, in an actual plan, right? Like all their dreams are about to come true. To your point, that what that didn't start last year or the year before or the year before that. That started like three decades ago and they weren't going to win the, the culture war back then. But this, and I'll throw this at you, this isn't about Moms for Liberty, it's kind of a tangent, but I'll say this to you. Could this be a problem, though, once they start underestimating how many of their own people are for some things that are on the left? Like, their next juggernaut is going to be, apparently, is going to be partially about contraception and pornography and no-fault divorce and things like that cut two different directions, right? <laughs> right? Like the red states are the biggest porn states in the United States. And again, fact check me, people, look it up. The red states are the biggest porn states in the United States. So this idea, you know, and they're also the biggest trans porn states in the United States. So when you start heading on that moral juggernaut too far in that direction, like Roe, I mean, people say that, you know, Roe was a victory for them, but in some ways you have some conservative and moderate women that privately, that was their threshold. That was their like, yeah, you know, you mess with a lot of things, but don't mess with that. So when you get to the dudes and you get to their weed and their porn, you know, I don't know that this moral thing is going to work for them. Anyways, that's a tangent. I'll quickly ask you what you think about that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot to, there's a lot to touch on there. If I were their strategist, I would be saying, fight the extremes, don't be the extreme. And I think what they've done since COVID is they have gone from fighting, I don't know if it's the extreme, but they were fighting masks in classrooms, which I actually agree with you, I think was a winning issue for them. And I think in hindsight, they were more right than a lot of people want to realize. Now, they weren't necessarily right for the right reasons, but the masking in schools data is not good. Uh, I just interviewed this woman named Bethany McLean, who originally broke the Enron story and did a a book on what we learned from the COVID pandemic. And she was very hard on schools for the masking stuff and all that. And and I think presented some pretty strong evidence that that was a complete waste of time and in many ways was counterproductive. And I'm a little bit more generous with people when it came to the COVID pandemic in the sense that everybody was doing their best and all that, whatever. But that was an issue that got them in the conversation. And I think what they did, and, and I'm not sure they weren't, unextreme from the get-go, but they showed their extreme feathers really fast. Now, the question is, what's a good or bad issue for them? Some of the issues that appear extreme to people on the left actually enjoy widespread support. But I think what I see from Monster Ruby is they, they can't help but get in their own way, both because of their own contradictions, right? Their leadership, like showing very terrible ethics. But second thing is not wanting to live by their own set of rules, Right. There was this interesting back and forth I saw on Joy Reid's show where she had one of the Monster Liberty senior uh, leaders on and asked this leader about the sort of pattern of book banning around the country. And I thought this was a fascinating exchange. Let's go to this clip. Let me point you to some statistics, because the question becomes then who gets to decide what all kids get to read? The Washington Post took a look at the uh, that about a thousand plus book challenges that were filed, and they found that they were filed nationwide by just 11 people. Each of these people brought 10 or more challenges against books in their school district. Together, these serial filers constituted 6% of all book challengers, but they were responsible for 60% of filings in Florida. Tampa Bay Times, they found that of roughly 1,100 complaints recorded in Florida since July 2022, we're talking
we're talking about more than 700 just from two counties, Escambia in the Western Panhandle and Clay County. Together, those are less than 3% of the public school enrollment, 600 of those complaints, two people. Why should 13 people get to decide what books tens of thousands of children get to read? Well, I'm, I'm thinking it's probably because those 13 people saw what some of the content was in the books. I mean, explicit graphic sexual content. And I'm happy to talk about some of that content if, you, if you'd like to. So, Chris, I think this is the problem for Moms for Liberty, is if you are truly, this is like the accusations of AstroTurf, right? Which is something that the charter movement, like every time we would be up against somebody because we were well-funded at times, they would be like, it's AstroTurf. Like, and what they mean by AstroTurf is like, instead of grassroots, they mean it's like artificial. It's like funders are coming in and juicing the turnout and yada, yada. And it's such an interesting accusation because at least in our context of charters, you had these sort of well-funded labor efforts often and other organizations that would have a smaller turnout than often charter parents showing up Sometimes with organizing help, often without, like, for instance, like when I was bringing parents out, we didn't have like dedicated funding for that kind of stuff. It was just us having strong relationships with our parents and our parents caring about what they were doing. But there was always an accusation of astroturfing. That accusation flowed, as you talked about, to uh, I forget the article it was. I think it might have been Pondicio in the Free Press or whatever was basically implying that. National Parents Union and these organizations were astroturfed because of their funding and lack of results or whatever. Now that accusation is flowing the other way. And it's and the accusation is that Monster Liberty is astroturf. And one of the prime pieces of evidence being brought forth is that there's all these stats about like 11,000 books like being removed or whatever. But what's driving it is just a few people. And that is a good piece of evidence when one is trying to say this is AstroTurf, is to say, actually, you don't have a movement. You have a small group of people trying to exert their will on the general public. And that is not a good look for Moms for Liberty. Well, I mean, the biggest question that she started with there, I think, is the most important one, which is how can you sit there and talk about all parents? How can we say parents and default it to mean white moms? Um, that conflation of what parents are, because, you know, if you're a white mom with a gay kid that is accessing things that help them understand themselves and somebody else hates it, they don't give a damn. They're kind of like, you can hate it all you want. I know my kid. I know my kid is, is exploring themselves and trying to figure out what it means to be a gay person in this world. And I know that the literature you would have them read is not actually the literature that they need. So thank you very much. I'm a parent. Stay out of my business. Right. So in any school, especially with the library, especially a public school in a public school system, the parents are wildly different from each other. They vote for different candidates on things. They go to different churches. They have different beliefs. Some of them don't go to church at all. Um, and they all have to go in this one building together called a school. At any given time, someone can fund one of those groups of parents to completely make an ass of themselves against all the other parents and try and push and have their way. Like, I don't like the stuff that you read, or I don't like that there's, you know, this patriotic stuff in schools or whatever. At any given time, you can hack a school system and interrupt education and learning because they are so vulnerable to these outside attacks. Even one person, I know this from being on a school board, even one crank. One person who's an absolute crank in your district can cause so much damage, and it's not because they're right. 
It's because you can do that because schools aren't primed to have to face these type of attacks. Now take that one crank and give that one crank millions of dollars to do the work that they do, right? Suddenly, that one crank is actually an existential threat to actually the district even running like a, a, a real district. She only represents some parents. And in every school system, there's some parents that would be for anything. So, you know, like the, the idea that we shouldn't have, this is the thing that gets me so much about scientific thinking people and how they're, they're dropping the bag on their criticism of Bonds for Liberty and these other groups is, it's just not smart stuff. We're, we're always talking about this as if it's a game, like theater and games and gamesmanship. And, you know, they're doing well at the gamesmanship of things. We don't even stop with the thing. They're just factually wrong and lying about everything. First of all, it's not pornography because pornography is covered by law. If there was literally pornography in the schools that was being put on kids, you could literally arrest people. They've literally tried to get people arrested and the law looked at the things that they were talking about and courts have looked at the things that we were talking about and said, this is not pornography. So you keep saying it and it becomes a cool talking point and people know that you're lying. You're full of shit, right? So, so, and, and we just let so many of those things go by because we're so worried about the, the optics and the game and the political game. And at the end of the day, I think that there are people called librarians who get paid a lot of money to be able to make decisions about criteria of what goes into a library. And it's not based on their whims and it's not based on their religion. It's based on a science to doing that. It, like most science, is not foolproof. So don't have me here saying, that I just trust the experts so much that I don't think they should be challenged. They should be challenged. But I don't want her making decisions for my kid ever. She is not a, a professional in any way. I don't want her making any. And this is the, the massive, I think, hypocrisy of the right-wing parent movement. It is actually a white mom's movement. It is really not an, a, a, a white cis hetero movement because um, if you fall outside of those bounds, they're not there for you. They're not there for you. As a matter of fact, they're taking, you know, they're not taking a stand for my kid on some things that I think uh, they should be taking a stand on for my kid. Anyways, how, how do you think this plays out in the long term if it keeps being about the optics and the game, but it's not really about what people are experiencing in their actual schools? Because most of what they're talking about does not take place in my district at all. Like we're not having some wild problem of pornography and grooming and all that type of stuff in my district. So it's just not reality for us. I think the problem that they're having is that their impact on the school system is starting to become obvious to people who live in these towns where you can't hide it, right? In New York, for example, the average person, even the astute person, will probably have a hard time telling you who makes decisions about schools, what those decisions are, and how it impacts them. It's just really hard to figure out. Now, if you live in Bucks County, Pennsylvania, you're going to know a lot about who that superintendent is and what they're doing, even in a medium-sized city like Nashville. Like, people knew Dr. Jesse Register was the head of schools, and they could tell you who some of the school board members are because it was you could point like a straight line from the decisions they make to your life. And I think what happened with these Moms for Liberty folks is that they were sacking superintendents, creating chaos, huge turnover in school leadership, harassing school leadership, hijacking school board meetings, making it hard for people to do their work. And when that happens, no matter what your agenda is, even if it were wildly popular and, and you were just using these means to get there, people were fed up. And, I, and, and to be clear, I don't think their agenda was wildly popular for the most part, but people just got fed up. They're like, I want one superintendent. 
right? I want stability. I want, I don't want our school board meetings to become a circus. Like I just, when, when it comes to your kids, like you're a parent, you know, this, you want predictability, you want stability. You want to be able to know what tomorrow is going to look like. You don't want this just clown show that had become some of these school board meetings. And that has been their biggest problem. And until they change that, that sort of base instinct to sow chaos, they're going to have trouble. That's my final point on this. So I'll ask you a question just directly. If there was a black parent organization anywhere that was national and that was really well-funded, and let's say it was funded by George Soros, uh, and they put out a <laughs> newsletter that quoted Hitler, do you think that organization could survive it? No, not only do I think they wouldn't survive it, but I also think like the theatrics at these school board meetings would be portrayed very differently. Not, not, not that, like, I want to be clear, there are people who are accurately portraying the nutso behavior at these school board meetings. But I think, let me just put it this way. I think we, it would it would be appearing on Fox News a little bit more if it were black parents. Who were quoting Hitler. <laughs> I just want to keep putting it out there. Who are quoting and, you know, let's just say if it, was a, if, if it was a black organization that, let's say, was connected to Louis Farrakhan, because that's the, that's the equivalent of them being connected to the Proud Boys and to all that stuff. Do you think that that would survive the Fox News news cycle? Uh, no. Probably not. Yeah, probably not. Um, which makes you ask a question, why? So let me just be more more detailed about this. A little more context. Not only did they quote Hitler in the in the newsletter, not long after that, one of the founders of the organization was on stage at an event and said, I stand with that parent. She didn't say it was wrong. She didn't say we made a mistake. She said, I stand with that parent. And people in the crowd applauded. Wow. Yeah, I don't know what to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, the thing is with these people is like, look, like, I think parents, and I have a lot of listeners, both for The Lost Debate and for Majority 54, my more political podcast, who live in the suburbs. And one thing I know about people who live in the suburbs is they want to know what tomorrow looks like. That's why they move to the suburbs. They want predictability for their kids. They want stability. And that's, the, I think this is the, the base miscalculation of Moms for Liberty is that they are viewed right now as the agents of chaos. And this is going to be their problem. Yeah, you know, another part of the story here, a thread in the story is that they were looking to move into blue districts and into blue states, and they were looking for their end in those states. It looks like in the last election, they lost most of the elections that they were trying to win in everywhere but conservative places. And predictably, they won some seats in conservative places, but it wasn't, it wasn't impressive, uh, the turnout that they got there. This idea that they might go into the left and they might go into blue places, is that any, you know, is that any thing that you are watching that you care about or that you think has has legs? I think like what's interesting is in New York, for example, they've established a chapter here and they've gone after certain pockets that feel disaffected, like certain pockets of the Asian American community, for example, and certain sort of lowercase c conservative communities of color, Staten Island parents, et cetera. Now, what's interesting to me is I do feel like a lot of those communities have unaddressed grievances because of just the nature of primary politics, low turnout, attack extremely left, the city council members and, and the politics tend to go a certain way. But I don't think moms for this is the problem. This is a national organization that, in my opinion, doesn't reflect the values of, for instance, the Chinatown, even the small C conservative Chinatown parents. And it's just an imperfect fit, to say the least. Now, I do think there is room for an organization 
to speak to those sort of lowercase c conservative values that I think exist in certain pockets uh, and do have constituencies, I just don't see it as a good fit for a national organization. Um, a lot of these organizations come from certain corners intellectually that are downright hostile to places like New York and big cities and blue states. And I just don't think they're going to get very far there. So looking at the information that I had about the chapter that started in New York, you know, it does seem like there's a good strategy at play. And that strategy is basically to be a bigotry dealer. Um, and this is the national strategy that could work in New York, which is if you go and tell Muslims that their kids are being told that they could, that boys can become girls, you might have Muslims show up at a school board meeting with people that hate Muslims, <laughs> saying the same thing that those Muslims are saying. If you can make Asian people think that the black kids are actually trying to keep them out of Stuyvesant, you can get Asian parents to come to a meeting to speak out um, with people that actually don't love Asian people, really, and are just using them as a, as a plot. And you could go down the line, you can start, you know, the newest one that I'm hearing is with LGBs wanting to remove the T. <laughs> so they're literally finding lesbian and gay people to say that trans people are out of out of touch and you know need to be taken out of the community, out of the thing. I'm only mentioning this to say some of this is absurd, but if you just really were a really good bigotry dealer, if that was your really your main kind of way of doing things, you might be successful in a place like New York and other places. Cause I think that you'll find that everywhere. The idea that blue places don't have their you know, don't have their bigots is kind of, I think, overstated. And and especially when it comes to issues like sex and race and, and history and all that stuff. Anyways, well, listen, I really appreciate this discussion. I, I, I think that in the future, maybe like I have put out two or three requests for a Moms for Liberty person to come on the show. Actually, I've talked to Moms for Liberty's public relations person. We've went back and forth. I've tried to, to get a yes out of them for a while. It kind of went radio silence and I have been blocked from Moms for Liberty on Twitter. So I'm not able to really like see all that they have got going on. But listen, Open invitation to anybody from Moms for Liberty who wants to come on the show. You'll be treated fairly. It's an open forum. You know, this is just discussion and dialogue. So, so take it as that. You won't be ambushed because that's not how we do things. Uh, we've had many people on this show that are wildly disagree with me on most things. And still they came and they had very kind of good conversations, normal conversations. And listen, open invitation to anybody who listens to any of our stuff and, and thinks that, they, that I'm totally wrong come on to the show. We appreciate you as always. This has been another episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. If you like the show, please subscribe to it and please leave a review for us wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to give us a star rating that you think is fair and aligns with what the real quality of the show. We appreciate you as always. So we'll see you on the next episode of the Citizen Stewart Show. The Citizen Stewart Show is a production of the Branch Media Podcast Network. I'm Chris, Citizen Stewart. You can follow me at Citizen Stewart. You can follow Rob at Ravi M. Gupta. You can follow all of the branches podcast at The Branch Media on YouTube, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. And check out our website at thebranchmedia.org. If you like what you hear, please leave us a review, give us a five-star rating, and subscribe to the show so you can join us every Tuesday for more of The Citizen Stewart Show.